Church family, today we're continuing on in a sermon series called Disciple, in which we're studying the Gospel of Mark and what it means uh, for us to be a people who follow after Jesus. Uh, before we get into it, uh, we are, I wanted to just share with you, uh, for those of you who are uh, honoring the Lenten cycle or following along with Lent, uh, that concludes this week. And for those of you who'll be celebrating uh, Easter, just uh, wanted to give you a quick heads up. So this is our uh, a schedule for the upcoming week. Um, also on the way in, you guys should have received an Easter invite. You guys can use those to invite your friends, uh, family, or frenemies, uh, whatever you've got going on. So uh, join us next week for Easter. So a couple of things uh, we've got coming up. So this Thursday is sometimes referred to as Monday Thursday. And our worship center will be open from uh, 9 until 8, so 9 a.m. until 8 p.m. And we'll have uh, stations, self-guided stations throughout the room for prayer. And so the doors will be open. You can come and stay for as little as long as you like and join us uh, for that time of prayer in preparation. And then on Friday of this week, we're going to have our Good Friday service, which will be here at 7 o'clock. Uh, we'll have music, a lot of scripture reading. We'll take communion together as well, and that will uh, give us an opportunity to reflect on Good Friday. And then on Easter Sunday, we will be gathering at 9.30 and 11 here in this room uh, for worship and celebration. We are uh, going to have some baptisms on Easter Sunday, so if you're looking to get baptized and would like to be baptized on Easter Sunday, just let us know. You can use the Next Steps card, or for those of you that are joining us online, use that Next Steps link at the top of our online platform. Uh, today, we are, like I said, continuing. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11. Before I read the text, I wanted to give you guys just a little bit, just a little bit of background uh, that will help make some sense out of what we're reading. And I want to start by asking you this question. What type of a king is Jesus? What, what type of a king is Jesus? What are, what are his character qualities? What are his values? What, what does he call us to? What type of a king is Jesus? We frequently will talk about Jesus like he's the king, he's the Lord, he's the, the, the one who rules over all. But my question for you is, what type of king is Jesus? And how does it shape? How does, how does the type of king that Jesus is shape your life. I, I'm going to argue today that in Mark chapter 11, what's sometimes referred to as the triumphal entry, or sometimes referred to Palm Sunday, I'm going to argue from Scripture that I think that in the tri what's commonly referred to as the triumphal entry, you get in vivid display uh, the type of king that Jesus is through repeated acts of subversion. I think that Jesus is subverting uh, what we would, what I would call uh, the kingdoms of this world or the powers of the kingdoms of this world. There's, the way that he does it, it's constantly undermining uh, what we commonly think of as, the, as power or powerful. So I just, I want to zoom in on that today, but I'd like for you to think about what type of a king is Jesus. Now, the background. Okay, so uh, in Jesus' day, Jesus does not come on the scene in a vacuum or with a blank slate. There has been, in, he comes into Jerusalem in Mark chapter 11, there has been uh, hundreds upon hundreds of years of history and activity and thinking and expectations uh, that have been going on in, with Jesus' people with the time that he shows up on the scene. So if you rewind the tape, uh, later today when you go home and read your whole Bible, which you should do every Sunday, you go home and read your whole Bible, you'll see that there's a thread throughout the Bible uh, of, of, of God establishing this people, namely Israel, and then he makes this nation, or ethnos, or ethnic group, this nation, he makes them into a nation state. They get a land, and so you get that in like 
uh, uh, Joshua, and so on. And so you see these, this people, this nation state in the land, and at the height of this nation state's power, at the height of this kingdom's power, uh, there were two kings, one whose name was David. He was kind of like the, the, the quintessential powerful king over Israel, and his son Solomon. And so you have what's referred to as the Davidic kingdom. It's this, it's this season in which uh, Israel was powerful, okay? Now, that was the height of power. So what ended up happening, though, is corruption happened within the people, within the nation, within the ethnos, within the people group. They became, there was corruption, there was division, and eventually God uh, allows for uh, foreign or outsider empires to come in and take over. So you get the Babylonian Empire, then the Persian Empire. So if you're a person living in Jerusalem, which is where we're going to read about here in just a minute, you're a person living in Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem has changed hands multiple times. The Babylonians came in, the Persians uh, came in, the Greeks came in and conquered, the Seleucids uh, from Syria came in and conquered. And then eventually the Romans came in and conquered. And so what would inevitably happen if you're a citizen in Jerusalem, you're, you, can, you continually, you're being conquered over and over and over again. Your, your, people's, your land is, being, uh, is changing hands. In Jerusalem, you had a building, namely the temple. The temple was first built under this dude named Solomon, who was David's son. Do you guys remember the Davidic kingdom? Okay, big deal, right? Right? Height of power. Under the Davidic kingdom, under Solomon, you get the establishment of the temple. And the temple did get destroyed a couple times and rebuilt a couple times. But there on what's commonly referred to now as the Temple Mount, the mountain, right? The mount, the Temple Mount, there was the temple, which was the symbol of religious, ethnic, and political power and pride. If you'll pardon the anachronism, it's like the National Cathedral, uh, the Capitol building, and the White House all merged into one spot, right? This temple was it, okay? And so if, you, if you're in Jerusalem, you had seen the temple change hands multiple times. You had seen Jerusalem change hands multiple times. You had seen people like the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Seleucids, the Romans. They would send generals or even kings, and those kings or generals, they would conquer. And inevitably what would happen is one of those generals or kings would ride into town in triumph, hello, in triumph, and they would have their war horses, their chariots, their, right? So, so for me, I, I, if I was going to imagine it, I, I, I haven't seen much of this in my lifetime, but I've seen some. But one of the ones that comes to my mind is some of that historic footage of World War II when Germany had invaded Paris and the tanks, the line, the column of tanks coming in and there in the background is the Eiffel Tower. Do you know why people would do triumphal entries? Do you know why they did it? You know what they were communicating to everybody? We won. You lost. Get it? Right? It's a display of force. It's a display of victory. Or the king or general would go back to their hometown and they would, and they would, they would roll into town in victory and say, hey, we killed the bad guys. And everyone would go, yay, take our tax money. Yeah? Right? So triumphs were means of communicating. We are in power. We're in control. That's what you would want to communicate to the, the, the recently overthrown people. And to your own people, you would want to shore up some sort of confidence in our empire's capacity to rule and to reign. So if you were a Jewish person, Living in Jerusalem, you were looking at the temple, you were looking at all these, these foreign invaders, and you were longing for what? And this is, I just want you to be totally normal, okay? This is totally normal. Do you know what's totally normal? Do you know what everybody wants when they're being ruled by uh, uh, foreign overlords? 
What do they want? Liberation. This is what everybody wants. This, this happens to everybody. Just look down the corridors of human history. It's what everybody wants. And it's, it's no different for the people who are living in Jesus' day. Jesus, in Jesus' day, there was a fervor, a group of people who were like, we, we're, we're sick and tired of these overlords. We're sick and tired of this occupation. We want a chosen one. We want a king to come in and kill who? Rome. So that we can reestablish our kingdom kind of like the kingdom of David. Hmm? And there's this deep longing. that, And in fact, by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, there had already been multiple people who showed up on the scene saying, I'm the chosen one. Let's go kill the Romans. And everyone's like, great. And then the Romans did what? Right? It's just this endless cycle of the kingdoms of this world vying for power. Okay, so that's the scene, right? That's the context. That's, the, that's, the, that's the, the feeling that you get when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And so I'm going to read the text. This is Mark chapter 11, verses 1 and on, and then we're going to study it together and just notice some things. I'm going to ask uh, that instead of reading along for this reading, that you would just hear the word. Uh, we have noticed that the Gospel of Mark was artistically designed to be read aloud in a congregation of people and to be heard and then wrestled with, and that's what we're going to do. Today, trust me, we will read along uh, here in just a minute, but I'm going to ask that you would listen. This is Mark chapter 11. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he, Jesus, sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here right away. So they went and they found a colt outside in the street tied by a door. They untied it and some of those standing there said to them, why are you doing, uh, what are you doing? Untying the colt. They answered them just as Jesus had said. And so they let them go. They brought the donkey to Jesus and they threw their clothes on it. And he sat on it. Now, many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, when he went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. The disciples heard this. They came to Jerusalem. And he went into the temple, and he began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it. And started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. 
Now, early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the root up. And then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. This is the word of the Lord. In this text, we see Jesus taking on the posture of a king but a completely different king, for he undermines and subverts all of our expectations of what a king is supposed to do. Check this out. Let's start with verse 1. Remember, we're asking ourselves the question, what kind of a king is Jesus? When they approached uh, what city? Have you ever heard, did you know that Jerusalem had changed hands multiple times? That there had been multiple overlords conquering over Jerusalem? And that there had been multiple people triumphing? And have you guys ever heard that before? Good, okay, good. At Bethpage in Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. What did Jesus do? He did what? He sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. How do you know? Because it still has the new colt smell. That's how you know. Okay? It's got the little tag on the back and you know. Okay? Uh, so that's how they're going to know. So untie it and bring it. Time out. Notice this. Who is in complete control of this scenario? Jesus is telling you, he's telling his disciples exactly what to do. I used to, I remember hearing a minister tease this out, and I felt the same way. He said, you know, I used to read this text or think about what we call Palm Sunday, and Jesus riding into town on the, on the donkey and them waving their palm branches, and he's going, oh, shucks, oh, you, you guys, I don't, oh, golly, gosh. He's not at all doing that. Do you see that Jesus is orchestrating his entry? He's in complete control. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it. Okay, time out. If you've been following along in the Gospel of Mark, you'll know, you've noticed, I think, that there are frequent times where Mark does a miracle or does a healing or something like that, and, or he'll reveal himself to people in some way, and they'll want to tell people, and you know what he'll say? Shh, don't tell anybody. In, in Mark, it's called the mess, we, it's sometimes referred to as the messianic secret. Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, but he, he keeps saying, don't tell anybody. Why? Well, I think that the reason why, and some other commentators believe this, that, they, that Jesus did not want to be misunderstood as just a normal run-of-the-mill Messiah, that he had something special to reveal, and he wanted to wait to reveal the type of king that he was. You see, everyone's expectations were thick on a chosen one, a Messiah who would slay the Romans and redeem us and, and, and make, uh, restore the Davidic kingdom. And Jesus continually says, Shh, don't tell anybody, I think because he did not want to be misunderstood as just all the other Messiahs, all the other chosen ones. But notice this. This is the first time, to my understanding, this is the first time in Mark that Jesus explicitly tells you who he is. What do we do? Why, why are you doing this? Say the what? The Lord. So that's the, in, in the Greek, I know this is a little nerdy, but in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's the proper name for God. So who has need of it? 
the Lord. Do you see Jesus taking that title onto himself? Who's in control here for this country? Jesus is. And what's he calling himself? Okay, let's keep going. The Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here right away. By the way, when my kids are eating something that I want to also eat, but they haven't cooked enough for me, quesadilla, cheese sticks, you guys are familiar with it. Don't, don't, don't sit here and act like you don't eat that trash too. Like that, okay, don't sit here in judgment acting like you don't dip it in a thick thing of ranch when they're not looking, okay? I know, I know you people, you do it, okay? When I do that and they catch me, do you know what I say? The Lord has use of it. And then I walk to the other room. Hit subscribe for more parenting tips from Pastor Caleb. The Lord needs it and we'll send it back here right away. So they went out and found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door, right? They, they found exactly what Jesus said. Uh, they untied it, and some of those standing there, of course, said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they answered them just as Jesus had said. So they let them go, which tells me that Jesus' name was probably great. That, that if they dropped the Jesus name, they're like, well, like, which Lord? Well, the Jesus Lord, Okay. Right, like these are normal people. You've got to remember, these are just normal people. And it's highly likely that they had a, they were like, oh, Jesus, the Jesus one? Cool, we'll, we'll do that, yeah. They brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road. Time out. Okay, so Jesus has orchestrated the, the obtaining of the cult. He gets on the cult, but what he has not done is instructed people how to behave. Do you notice? Jesus did not say, when I mount the donkey, I, what I need you guys to do is take your, your clothes and throw them on the road. He doesn't say that. They just do it. Do you see it? Because this is normal behavior. When a Messiah is going to come in, when, it, when a chosen one's going to come in and conquer, when they do that triumphal entry, this is what we do. This is, all of them were preconditioned to know, oh, there's a king coming in. There's a new king. There's a new Messiah. There's a new anointed one. He's coming in on call. Okay. okay. Yeah. Right. Honey, go get my T-shirt. Uh, go out, we don't, have, we don't have any more clothes. Okay, go out into the field and get some of those leafy branches. Okay, okay. They knew what to do because they knew what a triumphal entry looks like. They had done this before. So they spread the leafy branches that cut from the field. Uh, those who went ahead and those who follow shouted, watch this, what are they shouting? Hosanna. And Hosanna just means, I know that that's kind of a weird religious word to us, but for them it just meant God save us. Or it could also mean God saves. It's a petition and a promise in the same word. Why are they saying God save us? Let me ask you a question. God save us from whom? The occupiers. We want the foreign overlords off our back. And I'd like to prove it to you. Okay, I'm going to argue. I'm going to make an argument. I think it's a strong argument. You can disagree with me, but I'm right. Hosanna, God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, that kind of sounds like spiritual, right? Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Do you, have you ever heard that the pinnacle, the height of religious, ethnic, and political power for Israel was the Davidic kingdom? And that David and Solomon were the ones who, who made it so that the temple could be built in Jerusalem. And, and, and Israel was the greatest in that season of David, the Davidic kingdom. Have you guys ever heard that before? What do they want? And if you'll pardon me, they want to make Israel great again. They want to reestablish what? They want to go back in their minds. They want to go back to the height of power. We want to get our overlords off our back. Of, uh, listen. Of course that's what they want. 
That's what everybody wants, right? When you have foreign overlords over you, that's what you want. Notice that Jesus is subverting that expectation. Did Jesus ever take up the sword against Rome? Right? So you got to ask, why were the disciples constantly frustrated with Jesus? Okay, just keep watching, okay? So Hosanna, God save in the highest heaven. Jesus goes, okay, oh, oh, don't look, don't look, don't look. If you want a Messiah, a chosen one, a new king to come into town and kill the bad guys, where do you want him to go first? Where is he going to kill the bad guys first? The palace, right? What do we need to take over? We need to take over City Hall. If, if we're going to kick out the evil overlords, where do we need to go first? The palace, right? Okay, get your gasp muscle ready. Be prepared to be aghast. Are you prepared? Jesus went into the city Jerusalem and into the temple. What is this man doing? What is he doing? That's not where you're supposed to go. Jesus, the temple is our house. You need to go to the palace and kick out the bird guards. Jesus, you're pointing your gun in the wrong direction. You need to go over there. Oh, this is, this is so subversive. I love this, okay? Uh, have you guys ever, you don't have to admit this out loud, but have you ever looked at like a party invitation or on your calendar and it's like, yeah, I know I got to go to this party and you intentionally go 15 minutes late so you can make an entrance? The, okay, if you do all that time, thank you for being honest. Thank you, sister. Right? I do too. I do it too. The only time I can't do it is Sunday mornings, but a lot of y'all have been making entrances lately. 9, 30, and 11, every time, Enrique, every time, every Sunday for 20 years. <laughs> okay, so if you're going to go to all that work to make an entrance, you know what you don't do? Turn around and leave. He went into Jerusalem, into the temple, gasp. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. He went back home. What is this guy? What is he? Doesn't he, didn't he read Handbook for Messiah 101? If you're the chosen one who's going to kick out the overlords, the foreign overlords, you don't go back home, homie. You go kill the bird guards. Okay, Jesus is subverting what every other king and military general has done before him in their triumphal entries. You see, every other king and general that comes in for their triumphal entries, what's everyone doing? They're waving their branches. Plot, yay, king. And what do they do? They soak it up, baby. They're like, play more trumpets. Sing louder. More food. And what does Jesus do? Okay. Now, this is weird. I'm going to let it be weird. I'm not going to resolve the tension. We're just going to deal with it. Now, I did want to say, one of the things that we strive to do here at Desert Springs is we strive to the best of our ability to equip everybody who's a part of our church family to discern their own convictions from the Bible by the power of the Holy Spirit, which means we're not, I'm, not, I'm not like reading the Bible, making decisions, and saying, here's what you all should believe. Our job is to equip you to figure it out by the power of the Spirit and, frankly, for us to figure it out as a community, okay? Now, part of that means we've got to engage the Scriptures together. And one of, the re- one of the things, I think one of the reasons that most of us, we don't like to engage the scriptures is because oftentimes we read something and we feel like we don't understand what's going on. And if, you're, if you've been reading the Bible for more than a year, I want you to, I want, we're going to speak a word to those who have not been reading the Bible for a year or more, okay? 
For those of you who have been reading the Bible for a year or more, let's, I just want to ask you a question on behalf of those of us in the room who haven't really engaged with the Bible at all. Um, is there just a ton of weird stuff that's super confusing? Yeah, okay. And, and, and when you read the Bible, do you feel like you know everything it's saying to you right then? No. Okay. Uh, for those of you that have been reading the Bible for more than 90 years, you would say the same thing. Because here's the deal. Uh, there's this beauty of community that we're all approaching the text from different perspectives in different ways, and Jesus is bringing us together, cr- diverse, chronologically, ethnically, socioeconomically. I, did, I, I remember hearing something um, that, a, that, a, that a theologian said once. He said, reading the Bible with the poor is different than reading the Bible with those of us with a full stomach. And it's just, it's about, we're helping each other, okay, so that we're helping each other. So here's the expectation. We're going to read the Bible together, and none of us are going to have it all figured out. That's why Jesus put us together, so we could help each other, okay? There's a ton of weird stuff I'm about to read. We're just going to notice it and let it be weird, okay? And we're just going to think about it for the next 50 years. And then one day, one of you will have a little moment, and you're like, I got it. And then you'll help us, okay? Is that okay? Okay, 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 okay. Remember, we're time-traveling tourists. We're literally reading something from a a, a culture that's radically different than most of ours from 2,000 years ago. Of course a bunch of stuff's going to be strange. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, The next day, when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. What's Jesus hoping is on the fig tree? Fruit. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. The tree was fruitless. You guys with me so far? Uh, For it was not the season for figs. He said to it, he says to the tree, Jesus is talking, guys, he's talking to a tree. Jesus said to it, the fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Harsh? Hmm? Bit bit much? Okay. Uh, And his disciples heard it. Let's see how Mark resolves the conflict. He doesn't. In fact, he's going to bring the fig tree up. Mark consistently does this. I, I, we said at the beginning that Mark was artistically designed to be read out loud and to be heard. Mark does this thing, which sometimes we refer to as a Markin sandwich, where he'll introduce something, he'll put in another story, and then he'll reintroduce the content from up above. So A, B, A. You guys got me so far? Right? So the bread, and then the meat, and then the bread, okay, of the sandwich. And what he's trying to tell you is these three things go together, and he wants us to think about it. Okay? Did what we just read about the fig tree, was that weird? Jesus cursed a tree because it wasn't bearing fruit. So, dear reader or dear listener, Mark might be saying, watch what happens next. I'm trying to tell you something. Watch this. They came to, where are we again? Jerusalem now, okay? And he went into the, to everyone's surprise, the temple, and what does he do? He began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods throughout the temple. Some people will refer to this as the cleansing of the temple. I'm compelled to view it slightly different. I think there is a cleansing going on. I think Jesus is shutting down operations. And here's why. The, the selling of doves, the money changing, the carrying of goods to the temple, that was actually needed. That was part of the system. 
That was part of the temple system. You need that stuff to happen. You've got travelers coming in from out of town, from foreign nations. They need to exchange their currency. You've got people traveling a great distance. They didn't want to bring a lamb with them, so they bring a little money so they can buy the lamb there. You need this system to work for the temple system to work. But what had happened is that that good system for the temple structure to work became unjust and corrupt. I just want to just notice one thing. Um, Check this out. Notice Jesus' behavior. What's he doing? Flipping tables, he's shutting it down. There's all sorts of animals that got sold at temple. Uh, We think this was in the court of the Gentiles, which was for the the ethnic outsiders. By the way, if you read the word Gentile in in an English translation, more often than not, it's the word ethnos, which is just ethnic outsider or ethnic other. So he's, he, he's here, he's flipping over tables and chairs, specifically the chairs of those doing what? Come on now. Selling what? And we know that there was lambs that were sold there. We know all sorts of stuff. So it's interesting because if you go back, when you read the whole Bible later today, uh, you'll notice in your Older Testament, especially in the Pentateuch, there are commands, in the first five books of the Bible, there are commands given to temple sacrifice and how, we're supposed to do sa- how, how they were supposed to do sacrifice at temple. And there's this, there's this provision for a, a purification, and, and I know that this is weird and we're just going to let the tension exist, okay? They would sacrifice sometimes lambs, uh, but if you were not a person of means, if you were poor, if you could not afford a larger animal, you, there was a provision made that was basically a sacrifice for the poor, and it was specifically the sacrifice of of a dove. The dove was the sacrifice of the poor. Do you see that Jesus here is overturning the tables of the money changers and specifically it's teased out the chairs of those selling with a target to whom? There's also something interesting. In Luke chapter, I think it's Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph, Jesus' mom and dad, take Jesus to temple to make sacrifice. And do you know that we specifically know the animal that they had sacrificed? You're never going to guess. It was a dove. So, this, is my, this is my opinion. You could totally disagree with me. I'm totally fine with that. I, I do think that Mark intends us at least to see something here, or at least the Spirit of God intends us to see that Jesus might have also known firsthand what it was like to be part of a family that was subject to the corruption of unjust systems. That Jesus knows what it's like to be taken advantage of and marginalized because he comes from a household that was targeted. Here are the people who are targeting the poor. And so here's what I just want to say. When we pray, we pray to a God who experientially knows what it's like to suffer at the hands of corrupt systems, injustice, and corrupt power structures. I'll just, if, if you don't believe it here, that's totally fine. I'll just prove it to you. He was crucified, and yet he was not guilty. He was subject to multiple kangaroo courts where the powerful religious and political elite were afraid of him and they put him on trumped up charges and they killed him. So Jesus sees the, I think Jesus sees the corrupt systems that's going on here. What was intended for good has now become corrupt and now made economically great the power brokers of the temple system and he shuts the whole thing down. Here's why Here's why I think we should refer to this as a shutting down and not just a cleansing. Okay, can I invite you into this next weird spot? Here we go. 
He was teaching them. No kidding, he was teaching. This is the kind of teaching that I, like my, when my, my mom would be upset with me and she'd say, your dad's going to come home and teach you a lesson. And I would wonder, is this a, is this a verbal teaching or is this going to be a hands-on teaching? So Jesus is doing some hands-on teaching and some verbal teaching. Is it, it is, not, uh, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer, oh, I love this, for all ethnos, all the nations, all the peoples of the world. The expectation was that the Messiah was going to come in and drive out all the ethnic outsiders and push them out to purify the people. That was what their expectations were. But notice what Jesus does, is he drives out those who would take advantage He pushes them out to make space for whom? This, I think, is why throughout the rest of your New Testament, the people who are following Jesus are frequently calling to mind this promise that the gospel is to go out to all peoples, all ethnos, all don't think nation state, think peoples, because his house was supposed to be a house of prayer for whom? Jesus is pushing out the corrupt power brokers. He's pushing out those who would take advantage so that he can invite in back to what the original purpose was, that it would be a house of prayer for what? All nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. Now check this. This is why I think this is not a cleansing, but a ceasing. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. These are supposed to be the good guys. And so when you read this, you're supposed to gasp. So I'm going to start over. The chief priests, good guys, and the scribes, good guys, heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. Yeah, that's right. That is, see? Shocking. For they were what? They were afraid of Jesus. Hmm. Uh, Because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Why do you think they went out of the city? Because a bunch of people were trying to murder him. Like, this is just practical, right? Good advice if there's people in your city trying to murder you, leave town. Practical. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree. (gasps) There's the fig tree again. Remember that weird thing about Jesus cursing the fig tree because it didn't have any fruit on it? Do you guys remember that? It was 10 minutes ago. Yeah, so hopefully you remember. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the... Now, here's what I'm just going to invite you into this, and I'm not going to resolve the tension. I think that Mark is hoping that we see this fig tree as a lived parable of what just happened at the temple. Because has there been anything else that we've seen recently in this narrative that's corrupt from the roots up? That's supposed, that may look good on the outside, but is bearing no fruit? Let's keep going. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. I think Mark intends, by the way, one of the things that we know is either shortly after Mark writes his gospel or shortly before, depending on how you view it, uh, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And all of those structures that Jesus was ceasing, they actually stopped. So it did come to a close. So it could be that the original hearers were looking at this, trying to make sense of what happened to that temple, okay? So Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus replied, isn't this a strange response? Have faith in God. Do you think we're talking about a fig tree? So if my hope, I need you to zoom in on me here. If I am Peter or one of the disciples of Jesus and my hope is that my Messiah is going to kick out the Romans and reestablish Jerusalem and reestablish the temple at the height of power and I start to notice that that's not what Jesus is doing, What might I be prone to feeling? 
I might be prone to feeling hopeless and faithless. Is God actually going to do anything? Because where are we? We're in Jerusalem, friends. We are in Holy Week. Jesus is headed. He's making a beeline to the cross here. And if, if I think that the restoration of the kingdom of David is my ultimate hope, the destruction of the temple would be massively uh, debilitating to my faith. So it's interesting that Jesus says, have faith in God. Notice this. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to what? Where was the temple built upon? Temple Mount. And Jesus is actually there. He's there. I think, I think we're meant to see this as Jesus saying, if anyone says to this mountain, which mountain, Jesus? Oh, the one the temple's built on. If anyone says, and this is apocalyptic language, by the way, and I'm not going to resolve the tension, but it's there. If anyone says, this mountain be lifted up and thrown into the sea. See, that's another, that's a colloquialism of just saying ceases to be no more, right? Given over to utter destruction. And does not doubt in his heart, believes that what uh, he says will happen, it will be done for him. Jesus pivots here. Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Do you see that Jesus likely recognizes the hopelessness that his disciples are going to feel. And here now he is not answering about the fig tree, is he? He's talking to them about who they are and their hope. And this is what Jesus says to you and to me. What kind of a king is Jesus? Jesus is the kind of king who says, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Jesus tethers God's forgiveness and our forgiveness. He switches from talking about a temple and a fig tree to now talking about the type of temple we will be. And what type of temple will we be? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to encourage you. We're going to watch a little video, and then we're going to take a moment to reflect. And I'm going to ask that you would take this to heart. Based on what you've heard today, ask yourself a couple of things. One, what type of a king is Jesus? When he says, follow me, what, what's he like? What, what does he do? What does he stand for? What does he long for? What's, what are his character qualities? What kind of a king is Jesus? And then two, how might that king, want to confront and disrupt our complacency, our prejudices, and our preferences? How might he want to confront and disrupt us? And simultaneously, how might that king want to bring healing to the areas of brokenness? So what kind of a king is Jesus? And how might that king want to confront or disrupt me today? And how might he want to bring healing to me today?